So the digital trustworthiness has two qualities to it. One is um, it's, it's a digital manifestation. So I now need to think about how I can prove things digitally. And the second thing is it comes from an, an, a, a known trusted authority. So mm-hmm. you can trust me because Joe Bloggs trusts me and you know Joe Bloggs, so I must be okay. It's that, that kind of thinking. How do we navigate the challenges of the new world of work? How can we do things differently, transforming our people and our organisations for the better? It turns out there's quite a lot of later stage people in there, but they're hiding. One of the things that surprised us when we first started working with the VUCA skills is how bad they were. Like, nobody had them. The confusing aspect of of the transformation process and to consider in their own mind, maybe something right is going on with me. Who is challenging our thinking and living at the edge of work? And what can we all do to embrace new ways of working? Uh, the reality is not a single job is without impact. Around that want to, want to try a different way of working, I think now's a really unique opportunity to do so. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. I'm Dave Yates. And I'm Peter Holiday. John, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Dave. Great to be here. Absolutely. Um, look, we're going to cover a whole lot of territory uh, today, um, but why don't we start at the very start? Who are you? Um, we've done a little bit of a bio for you, but but give us where are you at in the world and who do you work for and what do you do? Uh, who am I? So the, the name is John Phillips. And that, of course, the, the who are you is that wonderfully uh, potentially detailed answer around the identity of people and stuff. So I want to go yep. to that will come out in the conversation um, but but uh, uh for the purposes of this discussion who I, who am i and where, how i got here the, the most current chapter the one we're going to be talking about a lot i guess is uh happened for me uh just about six years ago five six years ago now in a pub in guildford in the uk having a beer with a mate and, and that set me on the road for this next this current chapter that i'm kind of executing both with passion personally and professionally um around topics to do with sort of digital trust so the the um, the the sort of origin story for this conversation is uh, a really close friend of mine, currently working or was and is still working in technology and in intersection technology and society, um, explains that his company he's just joined that I've never heard of has just given away software to the Linux Foundation, and I oh, said, wow. you're going to have to sorry Andy is his name you're going to have to sort of wind back a bit and explain to me kind of a few things I didn't understand what you've just said. Um, so he gave me the background. The background was the company's name uh, uh, is was Evanim. He was the, uh, running the European operations for Evanim. Uh, they'd written a whole bunch of software. It had been partly through kind of working with others and uh, very high, well-known figures like Drummond Reed and others were part of the origin. They produced the software and they gave it away. And that when I asked, why did you give it away? Um, and the answer to that question is they were trying to create a global phenomenon, a new, a whole new way for the world to look at how we might prove things about ourselves and about the things we've earned online. Um, how okay. we might provide a new framework for digital trust. The only way to make that work at, a, at, a, at the level that they wanted it to work and in the way they wanted it to work was to go open source, open standards and as fast as you can. So you mm-hmm. need a very large, very highly trusted organization to be the curator for what you've created. And that was their donation to the Linux Foundation, which led to uh, Project uh, Indie uh, in the Hyperledger mm-hmm. Foundation uh, and subsequently Project Ares and also working in a thing called Project Versa. So if you don't understand it yet, the, the, the Hyperledger Foundation is a part of the Linux Foundation and it's a kind of umbrella organization for all sorts of 
technologies typically to do with distributed ledger technologies or cryptography and so on. Uh, so there's a lot okay. of things. Most people know about it because of IBM Fabric, but that's just one of the things inside it. So anyway, he tells me the story. I get really excited because it, it touches on things that I personally have been interested in all my life in a way about the way technology interacts with people and society mm -hmm. and, and, and hopefully it does things for the good rather than not too many unintended consequences, mm -hmm. too many technology decisions. But uh, get really excited, spend the next few months working out with him how we might do a kind of a bit of a jolly that actually is a really, uh, I think, a really good uh, kind of economic commercial thing, bringing him out to Australia to go around all the universities I knew at the time and uh, banks and so on. And we did a world uh, kind of uh, whirlwind tour of about 14 organizations in about eight days at the end of 2016, oh, wow. introducing to them this concept of what was then uh, typically called self-sovereign identity. Um, and uh, it went really well. We had a great time, uh, which was all part of the success criteria as far as we were both concerned. And that led me to talk <laughs> to the, my then, uh, and still really kind of uh, a, a collaborator in what I'm doing now, a company called 460 Degrees, um, in which I was, uh, and I'm a partner in, a, in an area of higher education, um, and suggested to them, I really need to invest my time in this for the next, mm -hmm. I don't know how long. And they, uh, to their great credit, gave me enough rope for me to play with, a significant amount of rope to play with. And I started uh, diving deeper, reading articles, creating uh, uh, content, I suppose, to describe what I was thinking about here, and then taking the conversation forward. We convinced my um, now co-founder of Sizu, which is now the company I would uh, um, say I'm working for predominantly, uh, to join us from the ANZ Bank. He was head of global payments for uh, and technology strategy for ANZ Group, so wow. pretty powerful kind Significant of role. Yep. Uh, a contribute French horn player and rower amongst other things but he's a lovely <laughs> guy. and so Joe Spencer is his name he's joined me as the co-founder and 460 only last year agreed um, with our suggestion and, and they were a, 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 a willing participant to create a new company called Sezu S-E-Z-O-O um, towards the sort of second half of last year uh, uh, as a, a kind of concentrator for all the things we've been working on for the last few years around digital trust. Cool. Um, wow. I am now a co-founder of, of a company called Sezu. Sezu is from the Urban Dictionary sort of says who kind of response. Ah, yes. Okay. Completely outrageously. And you're in a pub, you go says who? Um, yep. And so it's a way of responding with, to an attestation with a proof, if you like. Yes. Proof and yeah, says who? Who do I trust in this particular conversation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So what what we're doing right now, what I'm doing right now, is uh, having a having a blast, really. But what, but actually, uh, uh, hopefully, for 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 the greater good, for real good. But the, the, one of the you know we had fun creating things that you should with your own company. What the, one of the ones is the mission statement. So for us, it really is meaningful. Uh, we we want to. We our aim is to radically. Uh, improve trust in digital interactions for the benefit of all. And we kind of mean each one of those words. Um, mm -hmm. And we're working currently with government bodies and we've worked with large banks, uh, payment scheme providers, uh, higher education organizations, talking with them about ways they might think about digital trust and how that might be improved. And, and most recently, uh, we're working on some of the national and large state-based programs that hopefully we'll all see the benefit of in the next few weeks and months and years. Wow, that's fantastic. So for those who are scratching their head a little bit about this conversation so far, yep. um, we can dive into self-sovereign identity or digital identity or whatever, but maybe let's go to context first. When we say digital trust, what are we talking about? So so one of the, so you have to sort of, um, with all these uh, things, have to almost like break the words apart. So what do we mean by trust? 
Okay, I guess we can probably understand what we mean by digital, kind of. Okay, mm -hmm. yep. so let's talk about trust. Um, and it's the it's the kind of um, it's the oil that uh, lubricates all the wheels of commerce and and of social fabrics and society. You know, if you don't mm. if you don't trust, you kind of don't do. Is a very simplistic way of of thinking about this. Uh, there's some really um, really good books, obviously written around this this topic. Rachel Botsman is probably one of the the most preeminent recent authors on the topic. Okay, it spends the first chapter of her book, um, uh, uh, "Who Can You Trust," um, uh, where she looks at modern trust models and how we how we how on earth did we get to the point of going from um, "Don't speak to strangers" kind of advice in in mm -hmm. in uh, parental sort of in relationships with children to getting into a car with someone you've never known going mm. to where that, that you, know, you don't even talk to in, in an uber environment how come that's trustworthy or is it indeed she and so she, yeah, she yeah, I was, I was having a conversation the other day about how um it's almost someone someone mentioned in passing the fact that it's trust first and I and I kind of stopped and I said what do you mean and they said well, it's, it's it's a hallmark of western capitalism that it's it's we, we trusted first and then and then we let you know it's got a once bitten twice shy type thing right like it's yeah I am I, I, um, I want I, I I would I would hold back from the idea that it's it's uh, the unique uh, cultural sort of uh, uh, ownership of Western yeah. in any sense I think actually every human endeavor since we were a social species has required enough trust so that so that to carry on with the Rachel Botsman thing she she finishes with a having kind of explored all sorts of other people's definitions most of which were kind of vacuous in terms of they didn't yep. help in fact when she asked companies they couldn't often answer the question um with this idea that um trust is a sort of uh, um the ability to take action in the face of uncertainty that in other words you're like never going to know everything do you know enough so it, it's not about a black or white a sort of one zero binary kind of uh absolutism it's about sufficiency. I have sufficient trust to do something. So, um, and then almost by corollary, if you had insufficient trust, of course you wouldn't do it. Unless, you, mm. uh, or not, actually, even in this instance, if you're absolutely desperate, then what you're really doing is, is contrasting do nothing with do the thing I'm not certain about. And if I do nothing, I'm, I'm more certain the bad thing will happen than I am. You know, so in other words, there, yeah. trust is always in the equation. Doesn't matter what your culture is, what the situation is. Somewhere or other, it's happening. Uh, in, so in your, your reflection then would be it's bigger than that. It's not even like a hallmark of Western capitalism. It's like a hallmark of the human, of the yeah, human like condition, it's, so to that's speak. Exactly it's, right. it's ingrained in us. Yeah, yeah that's so, a fantastic perspective. So, so I think what we then need to start sort of picking about is is um, uh, a trust as a as a sort of construct is is a, has a certain sort of usefulness in how we think about it. But I think um, trustworthiness or trustworthy is the thing that we're really aiming for. How, how do we know that something is trustworthy? And yep. then we can make a decision about whether we trust it. Okay, so, mm -hmm. so now we're thinking about what attributes lead to trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. And and then um, the thinking that we typically apply is that we, we have lived in a society that's functioned reasonably well. Some might say very well for so, uh, tens, hundreds, thousands of years, maybe in various different ways. I mean, it's evolved and changed and had bad hiccups and done other things, but it's sort of done stuff. And... Um, the way it's got there and the way, what we see now is a sort of analog process of things that we do. We, we've got sort of um, physical manifestations of documents and other things that we use to prove to people stuff about ourselves, which mm -hmm. is part of the sort of trustworthiness proof. You know, mm -hmm. you, when, when I'm asked, you know, uh, uh, can you drive? I might show my driving license. Um, mm -hmm. you know, 
have you got an education? I might show some education certificate or something. But the the so I can prove things about myself because I've been given things by others. But these are physical documents, physical manifestations. So the digital trustworthiness has two qualities to it. One is um, it's it's a digital manifestation. So I now need to think about how I can prove things digitally. And the second thing is it comes from an, an, a, a known trusted authority. So mm -hmm. you can trust me because Joe Bloggs trusts me and you know Joe Bloggs, so I must be okay. It's that, that kind of thinking that means that um, if I present you an Australian passport, then you would assume certain things about me. I, I'm recognized as a citizen of the Australian uh, uh, country of Australia. That gives me certain rights and, and so on. So a bunch of stuff, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so that's that's the sort of um, trustworthiness and, and the digital aspect. The digital aspect probably warrants a whole other part branch of the conversation. Yeah, the digital aspect always gets me thinking about scale. Right. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other things that, that come with digital around personalization and autonomy and all the other stuff as well. But it always gets me thinking about scale because it's usually what digital provides is that marginal cost to hmm. to multiplication. Yeah. Um, and and so how does trust scale and 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 trustworthiness probably scale? Well, it, it's uh, it's interesting because yes, of course, we we all assume as we we should that di a digital kind of manifestation of something is much easier to scale, much easier to sort of um, reach out to thousands and so on. But some interesting and sometimes unintended consequences come out if you scale without thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the one of the um, interesting design flips that has happened over the last say 10, 20 years almost is that whilst we would originally receive proof of stuff by a kind of physical record, you know, we got a, a, a plastic laminated driving license, we got some sort of degree, if we got a degree, we got, we got, uh, we got a letter from the bank to say we had a bank account. Um, those things were physical. And when we used them to prove stuff, we showed them to the person that needed to know, and they looked at it and, and decided whether we were being honest or not. Um, the, they didn't need to call the issuer, typically. They didn't actually call mm. them. But the design of most of the systems that um, have been prevalent over the last, say, 15, uh, uh, 20 years have been centralized systems of trust. So that if you wanted to prove something about yourself, you kind of needed to call home uh, for mm. the verifying party to check. Now, that, that has issues with scaling um, because there's a lot of traffic going home. It also has issues with privacy. The original issuer of whatever you've been given is now observing things that you're doing where they may have no need. So to give you a simple example, you go to buy a beer in New South Wales in a pub, and they might want to see your driving license for, you know, they would need to know you're over 18. Um, now in the digital, uh, physical world, they'll just look at it. Yeah, sometimes mm -hmm. they might keep it behind the bar, bizarrely, but they'll look at it. Um, and then um, in the digital world, they'll call the issuer. Now, it's of no interest to the Victorian Licensing Authority that I'm having a beer in Sydney. It's not their business and it's not really relevant. But if the digital thing creates that, then they get to know. Yeah, mm -hmm. And now what they do with that information. And that, that's an issue with logging with Facebook, logging with Google, federated identity yeah. systems of any sorts, Apple's ID and so on. They, they, they have this potentially unintended thing about by scaling it they've centralized and they've now made yeah. a, 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 an aggregator of data almost an so, unintended voyeurism to a certain extent yeah I'd like, right? I, I like i prefer to think of it as unintended obviously with some of those names i just rattled off we might consider that some of that is not unintentional uh, uh, names and, like meta don't help right so no, um <laughs> no. 
and, and in fact, we know, in fact, for sure um, that some of them deliberately gather the data um, mm. so that the uh, your every your every transaction online, your every uh, sort of click on a website, how long you pause over certain bits of content, that stuff is gathered and used as a sort of uh, as it's, it's called in um, Sashana Zubov's book, uh, Digital Exhaust. It's kind of like the the after effects of your moving around the internet rather than the actual transactions you're doing. They're more interested in the sort of way you got there and how long you spent doing stuff than they are in yeah. what you have to do. Um, mm. So the, yeah, surveillance, cap surveillance capitalism, that's called in her book, is, is a real issue. Uh, so therefore, we've got to be careful about how we design the scale to scale for digital. Mm. So that, yes, you can scale digitally, but what you really want is that, it's sort of like the physical world we used to have, you know, a way of saying, I've got a thing that's trustworthy. I, I've got it. And when mm -hmm. I present it to the relying parties, we like to call them the verifier, um, they can trust it too. They can check it, but it's just between me and them. Nobody else. They don't, nobody else needs yeah. to know this conversation. Doesn't have to call home. And, and if you do that, exactly, no call. If you can do that, then the scaling, lots of really good things happen. Scaling is magnificent because no mm -hmm. other computing resources and network is involved in this transaction of proof. Um, so fantastic from a scaling uh, uh, and sort of um, uh, throughput bandwidth kind of concepts. It's a bit like um, uh, uh, fifth generation sort of networks for for, uh, for mobile phones, stuff, compute at the edge kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's great. And it's fantastic from a privacy point of view, because if you can minimize the amount of information and the number of parties involved, then you much, much reduce the risk of privacy, fraud, security, all sorts of things become easier to, to provide a, a good and trustworthy experience for. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Very good. Um, so then how does this, how does this kind of how does this line of thinking and this kind of technology apply to the day-to-day -day lives of people? Um here and today and possibly in the near future and, and in particular for those at work you know whether it's forming up a project or being part of something that's you know interfacing digitally what's the relevance here it's uh I mean, I, if i'm going to be completely blunt it would be it would have been irrelevant um in in a direct sense until really quite recently so the, okay. the you know the standards that we're talking about um that we, we typically look, look to that help us do this stuff are relatively new so uh, key key foundational standards would be things like the W3C World Wide Web Consortium's uh, verifiable credential data model. That was about a 2017, 2018 standard. The uh, decentralized identifier has only just been ratified this year as a standard. It's been around as a draft recommendation for a few years since. The um, actual operational systems being built on these technologies, um, I can normally, I, I rattle off probably three quarters of the world's implementations. You know, I can I can yep. sort of I know of them, and and that means there's not that many because I don't have a brilliant memory. So so I can remember the most. The fact that I can remember them and know them is probably means that there's not yet so many. But they're quite powerful. The ones that are there. Um, mm. But the one of the the projects that we're involved in that we're super excited by is the initiative that, and it's, it's public knowledge or publicly kind of uh, announced that New South Wales are doing on decent uh, uh, digital identity and verifiable credentials. Okay. So wow. their their intent is that at the moment, if you're a New South Wales citizen, about any any state in Australia, you can download the New South Wales the Service New South Wales app, mm -hmm. and that gives you a bunch of mechanisms to access the government with. Um, and they've in, in addition, they've got the digital driving license implementation they've got in, in New South Wales. The their future thinking is to to allow this app to kind of be augmented to to provide a sort of like a wallet capability, secure wallet capability that now you can hold 
government issue credentials in and those those credentials would be issued as verifiable credentials and, and the, D, uh, the W3CBC format um, and allow you to prove things to uh, um, organizations uh, that is in a way that's absolutely trustworthy and then enables you to do some sort of commercial transaction or social transaction. So, so they are rolling that forward um, uh, with some uh, 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 alacrity, I suppose, some enthusiasm. And um, if you want to, if you want to get a sense of the public announcements and follow Victor Domenello uh, mm -hmm. yep. in, in Sydney, and he, uh, he's a very uh, uh, excellent, enthusiastic sponsor of this, this whole initiative and, okay. and he frequently posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Um, I, I, it makes me think of one particular occasion where I was um, asked to produce the, the actual certificate uh, for my COVID-19 vaccination to get into a restaurant in Sydney. And um, the particular door manager wasn't impressed with my Apple wallet with, uh, with a, a logo. I wanted, wanted to see the certificate. And I thought, I have a graphic design degree. I can I can make a PDF. This I is, know. This I, is not... your, that's a, such a powerful point. It's such a powerful point that the um there's so many things that are uh are, are, are kind of becoming uh, people are becoming aware of and from the technology mm. design point of view, from the experiential point of view. So we, we've we're we're going through an awkward transition, in my opinion, right now, uh, from the idea that if I've received something digitally, like the, say the digital mm -hmm. driving license that's being used in the New South Wales, and that was the first and it's, you know, to be applauded for many reasons, but mm -hmm. it, they are now seeing ways in which it can be improved, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the, the risks is if I receive something electronically, it's a digital artifact, and I'm now using my phone to present it. Um, many techniques are used to try and make that a trustworthy presentation. So, you know, uh, holograms, rotating QR codes, all sorts of sort yeah. of, uh, uh, as Joe Spencer and I call them, trompe de wee, so the French word for those funny little squiggly bits you put on buildings for no apparent reason. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, that, it's that sort of stuff. It's yep. like, just because you've added more uh, more layers of stuff, squiggly bits, harder yep. to copy, it just yeah. it just means that they've got another thing to copy. It, 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 it doesn't, so what, what our point is, you. I can't see cryptography. You know, you you present. So I cannot see cryptography. I can check it with maths. I can use an mm. application software to check software. I have to use digital to check digital. You can't expect mm. expect a a digital manifestation to be checked physically by just looking at it. Mm. That's wrong. So that we need to change our thinking about your doorman and showing your COVID credential. If it were really to be checked, he'd need a little app to check your credential to see that it was valid, that it was issued by a trusted authority, that you haven't tampered with it, and that it mm. hasn't been revoked. And those four checks, by the way, are fundamental to the way verifiable credentials can work. Yep. Um, and the way, in fact, New Zealand are heading with their COVID credential. Okay. So, so that that's one of the things that's sort of fundamental is that we've been thinking about how you verify things because we've come from the physical world the wrong way mm. you're not going to hold your phone up and show something to somebody because that's just daft mm. <laughs> and yet it's what we're doing yeah so it yeah yeah no it there's a lot there i i wonder if i can um i want to get onto digital identity in, in a bit more of a deep dive but before we yep. go there i i, I want to make sure that the context is set for our listeners particularly around the business application mm. and you mentioned um hyperledger before mm. um and I'm familiar with Quant Overledger as well and what's going on um, with what they're trying to build around um, the finance industry and the legal industry and all the rest of it as well. Yeah. How does this kind of 
distributed trust or this this trustworthiness out there rather than at the center how does that play out in um at work how does it play out at work so that's yeah let's let's sort of um, boil it down to a simple sort of analysis so mm. almost all the systems that we if we've been employees of a company or consultants to a company and we've got some access to systems or buildings or whatever mm-hmm. um we've we've been entered into their IDAM system, their identity and access management system, and and yep. it it could run on a whole host of different sort of technology platforms that providers uh, 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 provide. But the um, the fundamental sort of uh, principle is that you prove that you've been given a, an identity by the organisation, HR or whatever mm-hmm. you've, you've been onboarded, and you prove you have it. So you prove the simple, the most simple way, of course, is username, password. But often now it's multi-factor. Sometimes it might be kind of token-based. You've got a card you swipe or uh, wave around or something. So so a number of different mechanisms, but you're kind of authenticating yourself to their system. Um, and now the system is deciding what that uh, authenticated identity is allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, the, that's, that's the traditional structure of IDAM systems for the last m- many years. Um, mm-hmm. the, the twist that we, we want to introduce to that thinking is that it comes from this phrase that we use to provoke conversations, which is that a trustworthy digital identities are essential. And so there's a plural, they're essential, and not just one, many are essential, but not always necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so what we mean by that is I shouldn't always need to prove who I am because proving who I am is actually typically the least interesting part of the conversation. Um, what you really are interested in knowing is what can I do? What, what are my credentials, my capabilities? So if you Got think it. about access to a building, I might need to prove uh, if it's a, a, I don't know, it's a, it's a, a power generating plant or something. And I, I might need to prove I'm a maintenance engineer. Now, mm-hmm. but for OHS reasons or, or other things, I might need to know which maintenance engineer and who I am for that purpose. But the first question is, is someone allowed into this part of the building? What kind of credential do they need? So that really we want to prove we have the right credential to access not who we are. But who we are is almost secondary. It's just a, a, an audit log kind of thing, not a not an entry requirement, mm. but a kind of post-entry data logging thing. I was going to say that's almost asynchronous then. It doesn't need to be done then and there. It, it can uh, be logged. Yeah, you can ask the question, does it need to be done at all? So for, if mm. we go back to the social situations where you're proving age or some other things to uh, bounces at a nightclub or whatever, they, they honestly don't need to and really shouldn't know your full legal name, your date of birth and where you live. Yeah, that's completely mm. unnecessary. And actually, if it were thought of appropriately, it's, it's toxic information for the organization to capture because that makes them a, a honeypot for hackers. So they, you know, mm. they could be sure. uh, taken, uh, for a bunch of reasons. But um, so what we're trying to do with digital identity in this access, what does it mean for employees, is there's a way of thinking about accessing uh, services and, and so on that says, the credentials are the most important thing, the, the, the rights they have. And you can think about pushing them back out to the edge. So rather than just giving someone an identifier that proves they are this person, employee number 1033, you actually push out to the employee's kind of uh, kit or, or card the credentials that they've earned. So now I can, yeah. if I choose to, allow them to access things because they've got the right credential and I can choose to know who it is that's doing it or not. That's yep. that secondary question. And it becomes almost the person holding this card has access to X, Y, Z rather than 
XYZ can be accessed by Sally Jane and Sally Jane lives at this address and has this many kids and all the rest of it, which like you said, is that toxic information that doesn't necessarily have to flow everywhere with everyone at all times. Yeah. So, so yeah, it flips well. on its head and, and, yep. and that flipping on its head, like you said, there's a whole, you've made me remind myself on a whole, but anyway, so if that makes sense. Then, then there's, let's, let's carry on. What, how, where, okay. where do you want to go next though? Yeah, cool. So I guess where does that then take us to um, what you used to call self-sovereign identity on the the journey you've been on since 2017 and and where are things at around that? So 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 let's explain why I kind of don't always start with self-sovereign identity as the three words that I use sure. to say what we're about. And so the the there's a lot of there's always been people thinking well about this stuff. We haven't always done well, but people have, uh, you know, there, there's lots of good thinking around. So a guy called uh, 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 Kim Cameron from Microsoft back in uh, 2007, I think it was, coined the uh, laws of identity. I mean, he called them laws deliberately to be provocative. Um, there are principles around the way we might handle digital identity. Um, and they're, they're excellent. And you can find that this around, unfortunately, he's passed away, but the last year, the, but the laws are really good. They've stood the test, test of time. Later on, about 2016, um, uh, a guy called Christopher Allen wrote a blog post called Self-Sovereign Identity. And he posited this way of thinking about digital identity and certain sort of principles around the way we should think about it. Uh, and and the, the sort of general sort of structure is around the thing about uh, control. We should have control over uh, the identities that we use or the data that we have. We uh, I mean, control um, uh, means that we can kind of deny or approve of rights to use, and and so on. We can we can take it with us somewhere else. So it's mm. portable. Um, it needs to be interoperable. I can use it with other people, and a few other sort of well, quite a few other um, kind of critical principles. Now those were those were the kind of that uh, he captured a lot of the thinking into this, this idea on self-sovereign identity in the blog post. He wasn't necessarily the first person to use those three words. And that called a whole bunch of people sort of uh, uh, a passionate interest in circles like internet identity workshops and so on. And, and then became the kind of calling cry. Now, the, the unfortunate thing with those three words is they are loaded. They're loaded with meaning. They were loaded with meaning when they were first coined. They're even more loaded with meaning now. So self-sovereign in the US is associated with a, uh, sort of extreme liberal sort of way of thinking around um, uh, uh, oh. rights and, uh, of individualistic sort of approaches and stuff. So uh, uh, identity, as we've already been exploring, is a, a very deep topic that has many layers. So if you start with self-sovereign identity, you could spend the whole meeting just talking about the three words, not getting to the gist of the matter. Um, so we, so we what do you call it now? So we, 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 we tend to try to talk about what the, uh, I guess, the audience of people we're meeting with want to talk about. Um, so if you want to look at a way of how, how might uh, doctors move from one hospital to another more easily, well, let's talk about that. If we want to talk about um, how, uh, let me think of another example, how people uh, uh, in credit unions, a, a coordinated kind of credit union uh, system might move from one kind of credit union provider to another with less onerous sort of proof, of, let's talk about that. Um, so if we want to talk about consent for genomic data, which is actually one of our other conversations at the moment, then, then yep. let's talk about that. We don't need to talk about self-sovereign identity. That feels like a, a kind of a mission statement or a political mm -hmm. statement or a philosophy or something. Let's talk about the practicalities, the business case, uh, the social economic kind of argument for a way of thinking about this and the technology that's yeah. important. Yeah, wow. And so then the, you know, then the overarching philosophy becomes 
um, really the art of the possible. Did you know it's possible to take this business challenge you've got or this particular work process that you have and instead of doing it the way you've done it with the potentially centralized or laborious systems or sometimes bureaucratic processes and you can push that to the edge by what is it almost redesigning or re-architecting trust yeah yeah, absolutely right i I can give you a really what we we love this example because joe as i said comes from a a deep banking background and we love it because Mm -hmm. it's slightly provocative for banks um so, so pretty well all banks in the world, and certainly those in Australia, have been running a program for the last 15, maybe even 20 years, called something like Single Customer View. Um, yes. And that, that program of work has been costing them, well, let's say between five and $10 million a year, the last, say, 15 to 20 years. And our argument is it's never going to finish. It's <laughs> never going to finish. You're never going to achieve a single customer view. So, so what you're doing is that you've every time you create a new financial product, uh, you often have a new system to support it, and they're kind of siloed for a bunch of reasons. And they capture information about the customers who signed up to this product. And the bank isn't quite sure whether this customer is the same as that customer. Is this mm. tennis club convener the same as this dad, the same as this financial officer of, in this company? And is and, and all so all these separate identities of people might might have been separately captured at different points in time. So they've moved from one house to another. Their name may have changed because they got married or changed something by default or whatever. Um, so stuff has happened that makes it hard. So now that's why there's a wonderful intellectual challenge for data scientists to crawl over all these data sets and create this massive data lake and whoa, look at it all uh, and, and try and find out more about their 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 single customer, if you like. Now, our mm-hmm. argument is, okay, you might need to do some of that from a, a anti-money laundering, uh, a counter-terrorism financing kind of point of view. You might need to sort of watch traffic am- amongst uh, separate accounts. Okay, that's that's sort of necessary. But that whole idea about, about trying to find out more about the customer that in a sense is in a genuine economic kind of good sort of way, why don't you just ask them? Why don't you just give them, every time you create a product, give them a proof that they have that product with the bank to their wallet, their own digital wallet, and then ask them um, or, or point out them. We'd love to, we, we think you've got a, a number of products from us, which is fantastic. We love that. We'd love to be able to give you an even better service than we do. Um, and, and we'll use you as the source of truth about things like your address, uh, your legal name, your whatever else. We won't try and de- decide to sort of uh, divine it by squirreling around in the data sets. You'll mm. be the single customer view because you are the customer. The customer. Um, and I don't need to run a program of work for four to five million dollars a year to do all this stuff. I actually put the customer in charge of data that they value and that we've given them, and they yep. can give back to us when we need them to do so. Um, so it's a whole different way of thinking about the problem um, that does turn on turn things on its head. I mean, it's a bit, mm. it's a bit of a, um, it's provocative and it's it's a bit probably kind of purist. You know, there are, there are reasons why it may be hard to achieve that ultimate aim. But it's a pretty interesting conversation to have. What you mentioned before, the fact that you and your co-founder uh, come from different strokes and obviously he's from banking and, and you've got that um, rich history with higher education. Is this playing out in the education space? Have you seen? Oh, very, 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 very. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, huge. I mean, so for years now, the education space has been talking about um, micro credentials. You know, there, there's been big, big earthquakes in a sense in, in a higher education for, for a number of years there's been the MOOCs massive online open courses yep so that all of us can sign up to a course by Stanford on something or pick a university that you like the sound of Yale or whatever you know, go 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 for the ones that sort of sound glorious uh, and do a course now 
the interesting thing is that those are, you know, they're intellectually interesting. Hopefully they, they're good in other ways as well for people. Um, and maybe they help them in their career. But if that's the case, you want to be able to prove you've got one. So now how do I prove that I've done this course and achieved this credential? So now we're talking about badges. We're talking about verifiable credentials in that sense. So they've been playing this game for a while and they've gradually microed the courses. So now talk about micro credentials. Most universities are talking in languages that includes uh, uh, stackable and snackable so that mm. you can choose from a menu of small courses and you can stack them up as you choose and you can then um, create your own degree, you know, yes. um, build your own burger, build your own degree. So they're, they're, they're thinking in terms of how they do it. Now, when you do that, the units with which you are playing with um, if it's in your own education system, in your own university, then your master's your own destiny. You can decide how they add up. If people are moving from one uni to another or mm. kind of jumping courses and adding things together, how do I add up these disparate parts? You know? Yeah. So, so there, there's long been this, this recognition of uh, a need to do a thing called credit for prior learning in universities mm -hmm. when you go to one place or another and they sort of recognize what you've done already so you can join the course at this level. Um, but there's a, a kind of growing awareness of the need to sort of do something at a more profound level, I suppose, about, about not only issuing students with their own trustworthy credentials. So Australia, since 2017, has run a thing called My Equals, which is mm -hmm. a system that allows alumni from Australian public universities to have their uh, testimony, their final degrees or, or postgrad sort of certificates and academic progress records to be uh, they're st uh, stored in the central server and they can be accessed via a link that's uh, dynamically created and given to a potential employer, say, uh, so to yeah, uh, right. whatever, IBM or something. And then the employer can look at basically a signed PDF. So it's a bit like, it's a bit last decade's technology in terms of the final product, but the concept is you can prove as an alumni that you've done these things. And mm -hmm. the, uh, so the universities are now all beginning to look at the microing of credentials, the cross-pollination, the, the stackable, snackable things, that there's a mm. whole host of challenges for them, not only in the curriculum they teach, but in how they recognize its achievements for their students. So yeah. yes, I, very much. I think I think there's there's a relationship there as well with um the very troubled, particularly very troubled post-pandemic business model at um at universities as well. Um and I, I remember this is pre um pre-COVID, uh, but but sitting in a micro-credentialing um, forum with, with a number of university leaders and associations, professionals, and all the rest of it, and just being blown away at how fixed that group was at making sure everything tied to the AQF, because that was their mm -hmm. reason for being. So everything had to be, if we're going to do a micro-credential, we have to know if it's a bachelor level or a master's level, or if we're doing it with a PhD. And then you've got all these market pressures at the same time because Microsoft couldn't give two hoots about whether or not it's a master's level or a bachelor level with their micro-credentials because no. that's a privatization of the micro-credentialing and it's it's using a tool. It's not you know learning a particular skill. And, and so you've got this weird mire that ends up being very cloudy, so to speak, um, to actually sort out, okay, to what level do I trust this credential that this particular individual has. And to your point, did they get into Yale or do they just do a Yale MOOC? Um, you know, and 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 that would be the difference between two different expectations from from that kind of a credential as well. And and yeah. I think, yeah. It's it's a fascinating, I mean, you know, I, I, that was a brilliant sort of observation. I think the 
I, I have some sympathy with their with their uh, efforts to link it to AQF. I mean, in some ways, they're kind of duty bound to do so. They're under uh, they're under the Australian Quality uh, Quality Quality Framework uh, Qualification Framework. They're also part of TEXA, the kind of Higher Education Quality Systems Association. Mm -hmm. They have to kind of prove they've met those requirements when they get audited. And it's almost one of the criteria for being recognized as a university. Um, mm -hmm. You teach university level courses. Well, what are they? Well, they're the things that are in AQF or TEXA. The, yeah. the other thing though, is to not underestimate that Microsoft, Google, and all the others that are offering online courses to be trained for engineers and others to, to learn from have their own quality frameworks. Published mm -hmm. or not, they exist. They have to, because Microsoft, if it's done one course, needs to think about how that one course now fits with the next one. You know, what does it mean if someone's done that one or not done that one? So, so that they have a whether they publish it or not, their own quality framework. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the 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 image we draw on a whiteboard almost always with with clients and people when we're talking with them about the stuff is a a, a sort of diamond shaped thing, which, um, which we then convert to a triangle. So the diamond is there's an issuer of something. The person who received it is the holder. The holder then will present it to somebody that we call the verifier. Now that's the sort of basic sort of triangle. And we, and we draw solid lines between issuer and holder. There's a real connection there, a real connection between the holder and the verifier. And there's a dotted line between the verifier and the issuer because we, we want to imply that there's no need for them directly to connect with them because mm -hmm. they, they can prove things without having to do so. How might they do so? Why might they trust them? They trust them because they understand they're part of the governance framework. Mm -hmm. implicit or explicit a governance framework so now we draw the governance framework which is connecting to the issuer and also to the verifier now yep. our model the zoom model actually puts that governance framework right in the middle because we we hold the argument to be that the the the, the person who receives this thing needs to trust the governance framework so they trust that their university is trustworthy in its own right and and, and there's as a reputation that's worth going to uni for and so mm. on that kind of thing so everybody ends up having to have an understanding of the governance frame so we draw this diamond uh that becomes mm. a triangle with the thing in the middle so the go the back to micro credentials university universities have the governance frames the text or aqf and other things microsoft has its own quality governance framework in the middle as well um mm. and the challenge then becomes how do these governance frameworks fit together yeah um, i wonder how how it makes me think about there's quite a bit of work going on, particularly with the clients I've worked with recently around the concept of a, almost like a cultural operating system, right? Mm -hmm. And like we, enormous lengths and millions of dollars being spent on onboarding team, whole departments to these laborious, great big values driven cultural operating systems that are, you know, there's a significant investment just in the overhead of even having these, let alone running your entire workforce through sort of four day onboardings or whatever. And, and then you've got your, your contractor workforce as well. And I think about the transiency of the workforce as well, particularly that contractor workforce and potentially even just the millennial workforce coming in and out, moving around all the time. And whether or not that this kind of thing could end up not just being about qualifications or attributes or access, but even just going, I've already done this, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a there's a absolutely there's a, there's a lot of potential in sort of almost a more qualitative or experiential kind. Of, there's, mm. there's absolutely no reason. In fact, there's every reason why you would want work experience and prior sort of exposure to things in in the number of positive or potentially negative, but certainly certainly recognition that the that you you've done these things achievements mm. which aren't necessarily linked to a rigid kind of quality framework or educational framework um mm. 
we, we've um, we've just actually finished our, our grant sort of report. Uh, we 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 won a grant to look at a thing called um, uh, by the Business Research Innovation Initiative, which is part of the federal mm -hmm. government sort of grant program on uh, automatic mutual recognition as part of the Mutual oh, wow. Recognition Act 1994. It's very exciting. Awesome. Um, but the fundamental premise is um, in 1994, an act was uh, uh, signed by Parliament and the states and territories and also New Zealand to enable uh, occupational registrations to go from one place to another, one jurisdiction to another and apply their craft. So if you're a plumber or an architect or a teacher, you ought to be able to go from one state or territory to another or from New Zealand to others and so on. And, and, and without having to go through onerous relicensing processes. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that includes, of course, uh, concepts like uh, um, uh, working with vulnerable people, working with children checks, stuff like that for certain of these yep. occupations. So they're not all kind of academic qualifications or trade qualifications. Some of them are kind of fitness type qualification. Yeah. Um, and that was a very interesting exercise and thinking about how would this technology help there? And, mm -hmm. and we were trying to be um, appropriately humble, I think is the right way to say it, that there are too many technologists that imply that their technology is the silver bullet for all these ills. And I don't know of any technology that is such a thing. In fact, if someone comes to me with that sort of proposition, I tend to think two things. They either don't understand the technology very well, or they don't understand the problem very well, or perhaps mm. both. Um, mm. Because it, it, it cannot be. A technology cannot be a solution for a social economic kind of complex problem. So mm. on, on people moving from one place to another and proving that they should be able to be a plumber in Queensland, mm -hmm. um, they they the technology we love to promote allows them to prove this thing in a in a, a, a privacy enhancing secure uh, kind of trustworthy way now mm. what the receiving party makes of that is mm -hmm. still up to the receiving party so they can yes. still they can so law might say no you must trust the plumber that comes from new south wales that proves that they can plumb okay okay so that's that's okay one thing they have redress to the law but queensland might decide no, no we don't like plumbers from new south wales um mm -hmm. so we're gonna make it difficult and it's mm. and a sovereign jurisdiction. They might raise hurdles or requirements. Uh, as an example, teachers in Queensland, um, the Queensland Authority for Registration of Teachers, every 24 hours, so let's say the morning, receives an update from the police in Queensland of any offence that is of note committed by a teacher in Queensland. Um, wow. Such that the Teacher Registration Authority can decide whether or not that's, that's a, 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 a noteworthy enough uh, 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 events that they need to consider something about their registration as a teacher. So there's a sort of automatic cycle of, and, and you can understand why that might be important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can also understand why that's quite potentially quite different to other states that may not do that. And, mm. and so if a teacher is working from, say, Victoria and Queensland, they go back to Victoria and they go completely off the rails, then does the Queensland Registration Authority hear about that? Or maybe mm. not. There's all these sort of, once you start peeling back the layers of the onion, people raise sort of good challenges, I suppose, as to why this will be difficult to make work, because not everything mm. is the same in all states and territories. But we can we can say the technology will. The technology will prove sort of things if you want them to be proved, but the rest of it is up to you guys. Um, how, do, how do we, and I, I probably mean this more holistically now, because, you know, like you said, as you peel back the onions, it, it does get more and more complex. And, and I think part of, Part of the conversations we try to have on this podcast are about understanding the complexity of the world we live in with a bit more detail so that we can navigate it better. So in a, in a bit more of a holistic conversation, you mentioned in passing at the start of the conversation around um, 
surveillance capitalism mm-hmm. and and the idea that you know there there is some wrong being done with the level of surveillance happening at the moment um, for monetary gain. Um, how do we balance that with the conversation we just had? And the fact that a level of surveillance may be good for everyone because watching certain professions and making sure that there aren't bad actors in there is probably good surveillance or maybe not. I don't know. Like how do we balance that? And what's the, what's the good principles to think of in navigating that level of complexity? That's a great question. And that that is a, a, almost a lifetime's worth of of work and thinking around that. But I think there's some, there's some, there's some sort of fairly obvious kind of uh, ideas that need to be part of that. One, one Mm. is, uh, is transparency and kind of informed consent. So, so we ought to, uh, we ought to um, understand what it is we're kind of uh, up for when we agree to a thing and and if it's a difficult thing uh then it ought to have gone through some degree of process of review and and even democratic or referendum or something to agree yeah we should do that that way as a society this is what we accept so Mm -hmm. i i have less problem when there's been a process of sort of transparent open decision making uh to achieve an outcome and everybody's aware of the stakes and the and and the consequences of their decisions and all that kind of stuff I, i think too often um things are done without informing others uh, uh, and or informing them in a way they have no reason they have no way to really understand genuinely what it is they're being asked of it's a it's an unfair contract if you like you know when you're asked you know accept these cookies or you won't be allowed to access the service um it's not really a fair kind of discussion um there's, there, there's a lot of that sort of stuff online and there's a lot of it also in sort of even in our social environments often so i think a transparent uh, and sort of authentic process of of agreeing this is how we want to approach this problem it is certainly necessary and it's one of one of the ingredients for it but it, it's it's a problem i think that is particularly present in, in the technology industry we we've had um for good reason conversations with sort of the heads of computer science universities around you need to introduce ethics and other kind of concepts into the conversations you're teaching uh computer scientists because they're brilliant engineers but they they honestly don't know what they're doing from a social point of view, uh, and and they risk creating things that have horrible unintended consequences, um, mm. w- without even realizing. And unless they 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 won't become the, the ethicist, I suppose they won't necessarily become a philosopher. We don't we need don't need that. We just need them to be a bit more aware of their limitations and where the risks might lie, and mm. keen to have others in the room when they're making mm. decisions about how things might work. Yeah, be given frameworks to think, or at least places to yeah. go to help think through some of those more complex issues with the right yeah. with the right heads in the room. That makes yeah. a whole lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, um, right. So I think I think I I I mean I'm sort of interested in the idea that you know, teachers in Queensland theoretically every 24 hours is an update, uh, and I don't know how many of them know that. Maybe it's common knowledge and nobody minds. Mm. I mean, it's a literally a fair cop if you get done by the police because you must have done something wrong or something but of course if you're concerned um that the police may um incorrectly uh uh kind of incarcerate or do something else or have other sort of issues or vices then of course you come become concerned with that kind of thing because it has other other consequences the 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 debate that particularly entertained me uh, and still does is the use of biometrics in a lot of the Mm. digital identity world Uh, and Mm. that really is fraught i think with too many too many very smart people looking at increasingly um, kind of interesting ways of, of both uh, uh, identifying people and predicting behaviors. 
Mm. Uh, and that sort of stuff is almost the, the, the it's the realm of minority report and other sort of dystopian mm. sites, sort of uh, futures where. Um, An interesting um, observation on that one. I've got to try and remember which episode we recorded. There was a conversation on one of our, one of our previous episodes recently um, where, we where we talked about this a little bit, but from a completely inverse point of view. So there is a rising appetite for, um, uh, for bio, I guess, biomonitoring effectively, um, but potentially from the, from, the, from the end of the consumer. And so there's questions being asked, like, if I can wear my Apple Watch at work and my entire team can show quantitatively that the entire team's heart rate and cortisol increased with that particular person in the room, what's going to happen with that? And can we demonstrate the, the impact of that? And so it distributes the power out to the individuals if they can create an organizing factor around that kind of biomonitoring, but it's putting the hands back in the people, so to speak. Yeah, uh, I think it, I, it's, it's all, all these things are, are genuinely interesting. I am genuinely interested in those sort of things. I, I guess they, they, the, I, I'm kind of cautious about how we, uh, in, how we kind of apply those sort of that mm. potential access to data. I mean, there, there are things like uh, somebody's pulse rate or, or, or levels of sort of ver uh, various hormones, and they might fluctuate wildly or respond differently to others. That should we assume everybody responds in the same way to a mm. stimulus? And is mm. that response a, a good response? I mean, uh, let, to mm. take a, 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 an interesting point of view that, you know, sociopaths and psychopaths tend not to respond to things <laughs> in, in a, in a yeah. kind of, and that's almost the definition of a sociopath or a, psych a psychopath, that they don't respond emotionally to a stimulus that others find emotionally impactful. Mm. Um, so so the, the lack of response might be as important as the response. You know, I, mm. I just think we tend to, gleefully like children in a toy shop think we can do things with this stuff that generally we can't you know how long did it take before real people realized that facial recognition technology had an in inherent bias um because of the way the data sets were captured and used um that if you've used a data set on uh, in a sense of uh, uh, convicted felons uh, as the source of data set for for facial recognition it turns out that it thinks people of the same proportion of the felons that already exist are likely to be felons um, so yeah. if you've disproportionately incarcerated a certain type of population type, then they're going to be thought of as felons when you do the general population facial recognition. Go yeah. figure. Uh, yeah. So it, that sort of, we just have to be super careful when we think we can apply technology in a really smart way to something. Mm. Um, the, mm. one that, the one that I was in a meeting in our company and the 460 company where somebody was enthusiastically promoting this technology that... Um, I, I think it's been trialed in uh, in Chadston. So I, I'm saying this, but I, I, I'm happy to be wrong about this. But that where they were using uh, um, uh, camera technology to remotely sense uh, through kind of uh, uh, physical body language and movement the, the possibility that somebody might become violent. Now that sounds like a thing for the good. You know, that sounds like something that would be of, of uh, use and people might like. But I, I'd like there to be signs that come in and say you are being watched by cameras. That predict whether you might be violent. I'd be interested to see how people feel about that when they walk yeah. into. And the other thing is, um, says who? S says who that person's going to become violent? And if you approach yeah. the three security officers, they probably will be become violent because they're confronted by this thing. And 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 there's yeah. a whole bunch of what? Who gave you the right to do that? Kind of questions mm. in mind about about that kind of surveillance um, mm. and use of predictive analytics and AI and and so on. So we. We've got this wonderful opportunities ahead of us with technology. We just have to be super careful about how we how we apply them. 
Yeah, I think that's a great way to round it out. Says who? <laughs> I think yeah, that that it kind of takes it all back full circle, right? Like, um, not just with the name of your company, but really gets us thinking. Like, yeah, as as much as we might like to think it's going, you know, the machine learning is going to be the answer. Says who? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a and, that's a fantastic reflection. And I think the I think the other thing, you know, this, it's, it's, I, I've loved technology forever since I, I was been lucky enough to work in it kind of all my life, um, mm -hmm. and I've loved every every day and week of it. But the the and it keeps getting better in some respects, in the sense of you want an interesting life, um, mm. uh, it, it doesn't get less interesting. But the 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 awareness of of um, its potential impact, I think, is the thing that's become much more much more kind of uh, current in my my current sort of chapter of work. And, and there's, uh, I guess I'll share uh, a publication I came across from the New York University, who have mm -hmm. a, a kind of global uh, ethics and social impact kind of uh, uh, school. And they they published a book on um, paving the digital road to hell. Mm -hmm. It's a 100 page sort of report on the on the global digital identity systems. Uh, such as those promoted predominantly by the World Bank um, uh, 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 and uh, also by countries such as India with our ADA, uh, Adaha uh, and others. So it's it's it, the fundamental point it makes, if I, I, I'm probably dumbing it down too far, but is that there is a profound difference between a digital identity system, thing that, a thing that identifies people, and something that recognizes their rights as a human yes. being. So the, the legal right to do things and identifying somebody are, are kind of separate systems, if you like, of society. Mm. And their, their, their observation is we are far too concentrated on the identifying thing and far too little concentrated on the recognition of rights and realization of those rights. Um, and, and that's a, it's wow. a really interesting read if, if, uh, if people get a time. There, there is obviously an exec summary, uh, which is only two or three pages long, not yep. 100 yep. of the rest yep. of it. Um, on that, while we're talking about it, you mentioned before that you just finished that um, report that you've done for the grant. Is that something that's going to be publicly available? Is that something I, you can share? I hope so. I, I, yep. Certainly, we uh, since uh, we led it, but we, we we'd be very happy to share the sort of thinking that went into it. I think what well, what I do know is happening with that uh, is that 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 particular program um, has a second phase, and we've been invited mm -hmm. to. Uh, to sort of put a hat in the ring for the second phase of, of uh, actually building out prototypes. So POX, proof yeah, of cool. concepts. Um, yeah, and we need to respond to a grant application, I think by the end, uh, in, a, in a few weeks time or something. But I, be, I'll, I'll, see if, I'll see if I can find out um, how much yeah. we were about to share. The, um, yeah. We took we had to take a 120 page working document, which we'd built down to a 20 page report summary that they wanted us to provide. So we were kind of physically limited to 20. Uh, which is a good exercise probably yeah that is distillation it's yeah. uh yeah it, it's quite yeah. something i think we'll have change notes in 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 the episode uh both in, on okay. on podcast and on youtube oh. so so yeah if you can if you can send them through and and of course links to um uh to that uh that other paper as well would be really useful um for people interested in this kind of thing as we wrap up um because i know we're running out of time uh it would be worth um, those who want to hear a little bit more from you, if you could wrap up kind of what you do and and at at says who and how um, and and yeah, give me it in three words. What are the three words that wrap up John Phillips at says who? I think I'm going to go for the three at the beginning. Uh, radically improving trust. Radically that's, that's improving trust. Amazing. I like it. That's yeah, that's very good. We, we and, Go I'll on. give you the background to that just just because I think it's fun. We Please. were trying to yeah. think about how how do you summarize what you want to do in in those in a few words, and 
we're looking for a, uh, looking for a kind of um, in, uh, 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 ideas from all sorts of sources. We came across one from way back when. There's a there's a company bizarrely. Uh, this reference is bizarre. Marks and Spencer's in the UK, possibly the most sort of straight laced, boring, conservative in the sense of small C safe kind of retailer in the UK. Um, yep. yeah, highly respected, but you know very kind of safe. Yep. Um, it's its first mission statement was to radically disrupt the class system of England. Um, wow. And it, okay, that was its first mission statement. And the reasons it thought it might do so or aimed to do so was because they could provide high quality clothing to people who otherwise couldn't afford it. And therefore they could uh, apply for jobs and so on at the levels they in the class system of England they wouldn't otherwise be able to attain. So so we thought, shit, if Marks and Spencer's can be radical, so can, so can we. So, mm. so um, yeah, radically improving trust is what we're about. Um, yeah. At the moment, it's mostly edu it's a lot of advisory consulting work. So we're not a product yep. company. We're yep. an advisory consulting company. We run workshops, help write papers, business cases, and so on, help people think about things in certain ways. Um, we know a lot of the companies that build products around the world. It's a great community um, locally and internationally, uh, which we're well connected to. And what we typically find we do is help our, help our clients understand if they've now become interested in doing something with these technologies, how they might go about finding the right party to work with with those technologies. So we provide a very independent view on that on that sort of stuff. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Um, we also like wrapping up the podcast with like an immediate next step. So if, if someone wanted to understand this a little bit more and, and think about in more detail what trust means for their role and or potentially even for them more, more personally, What's the call to action for you? What What are you telling people to read or go do or to think about? Uh, it's so it so depends on the person I'm sp speaking to and what what the sense you have of their of of what they might be interested. Can I give three? I, I will give no, three. So if absolutely. If, I, this this risks fueling your concerns or paranoia if you already have them. But the Sushana Zuboff's book Surveillance Capitalism is is a must read if you're kind of interested in how we kind of got to where we are. With the way people like Google and Facebook and others gather data about uh, you and then use it uh, to do other things and, and to earn many millions of dollars, billions of dollars. So that's one thing. The second would be if you're interested in trust and, uh, and trust in sort of digital ecosystems, then Rachel Botsman's book, uh, Who Can You Trust, is another great, great thing. If you're interested in the technology and this whole movement, this whole sort of thing around self-sovereign identity, verifiable credentials, all that stuff. Um, then there's a thing called ssimeetup.org, which mm -hmm. is a, a repository of previous sort of webcasts and uh, webinars and so on by many individuals who've been significant contributors to the whole sort of thinking. They talk about some fundamental building blocks. Uh, some of them are challenging the very way we think might think about these things. So they're kind of one hour type webinars and they're a great source and they will link to many other things. Um, but it's a it's a big rabbit hole warren of stuff. So you'll have fun if you mm. can this stuff. <laughs> Very good. Um, and closing thoughts. I think um, we we have um, I guess discussed around the skirts of um, I guess the zeitgeist of the day at the moment around Web three and crypto and all the rest of it, but haven't addressed it directly. Before we finish up, can you give us your closing thoughts on how? This conversation around identity and trust, and probably moving to trustless and things like that. Like, what what so, adjacency does this have to that world and Web three and crypto and all the rest of it? Uh, uh, kind of significant, I suppose. So, so some of the 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 very uh, so identity identifying proof and so on. These things are, are, are 
core and decentralized mechanisms to do so are core to the kind of web three kind of architectural pieces if they are to fulfill their promise i mean there is a, also a concern that web three could be owned by the few and become just the same as kind of web two was in some respects mm -hmm. so so assuming we go for the the, the good uh, the glass half full version of web three then yes decentralized identity ways of independently proving things about yourself become an essential ingredient to how that might um, come out on the on the good side of the coin um the 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 interesting thing is that um the the challenge becomes then one of not just having self-attestation which is where i declare myself to be trustworthy um based on what we're saying at the beginning of the discussion uh my thinking is you'll always have to lean on something that kind of proves the value of that statement some some relationships you already have other attestations by the people sort of the web of trust kind of thinking but so the but the idea is that you should uh, in the moment of proving it, you should be independently able to do so, and it's a private conversation. So yes, it's, it has a profound role to play in Web3. I was, just came off a, uh, a meeting for an hour and a half with a bunch of extraordinarily talented lawyers in Australia talking about creating a new law by DAO. Um, and wow. wow. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's it's core to Web3. Um, I, for me, it's core. Whether Web Web3 comes about how we'd like it to be or not, it's fundamental to the way we move ahead. Mm. Web three, web four, web five doesn't matter. This stuff is yep. is important. Things are moving to that direction and probably at an accelerating rate to be more yep. distributed and and moving trust out to the edge by the yep. sounds of it, which is a nice way to probably capture some of what we've been talking about today. John Phillips, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it, and um, yeah, look forward to see, speaking with you soon. Pleasure, Dave. Thanks. See you. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks for listening. What's Next is brought to you by The Next. We are workplace futurists and transformation facilitators. You can reach us on the web at www.thenextnxt.com.au. Please ensure you subscribe to our channel to ensure you don't miss our up and coming episodes.